probably the number one trait I look for when I hire somebody is, are they curious? You know, are they going to go out and do this level of research? Are they going to stay on top of things, just keep their, their blade sharp, if you will? Are they going to, you know, try and find the answer themselves? Or are they going to come to me all the time? You know, so curiosity is probably, like I said, it, it's the number one trait that I'm looking for in someone. Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketers.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also quite simply to have great one-to-one -one conversation if you need any help. So welcome to episode number six already of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Today I'm talking to Justin McGill. Uh, he's the founder of Leadfuse, which is a service to help businesses to generate more leads online. And he's also the, uh, the host of a podcast called Zero to Scale, which is a podcast where they share him and one of his uh, friends who also has a business. They share their journey to build a profitable business. He has a very interesting life story. Uh, he went from being a manager and a, in a well-paid job uh, to becoming a professional poker player. Overnight, uh, he won 24K and, and used that to buy, to buy a watch. And the next day, uh, lost 24K. Uh, he's going to go through this story a little bit more. And then he also went cold turkey into launching his first uh, consulting business that turned into the software business that he has today. So in this episode, you're going to learn how competitors started to actually pop up, compete against his business because of the fact that he was being very transparent about it, uh, how to use the skyscraper technique to actually create content that people will like. You're going to learn also how to write good email subject lines and how to contact people who don't know you and contact them the right way so that they can reply to you. So as usual, uh, have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Justin. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time. Um, the first question I want to ask you is, what's better? Is it to run an agency or is it to run a, a SaaS business? Oh, good question. So an agency certainly has its advantages because digital marketing in particular, because the skills you learn at digital marketing can really apply to any business that you decide to do next. For me, I was kind of ready for the next challenge. I had grown that business, uh, you know, it was successful and I wanted to get into software. So for right now, I've made that transition. I kind of put a team in place to run the agency and I moved on to, you know, start, start Leadfuse, which is a software as a service company. And so right now that's where, where my passion lies. So, uh, I would say, you know, it's, it's, I guess for me, it's better to, to be running a SaaS business at this point. And so how many people is there in this, uh, in the agency now? Uh, there are eight people and a couple of those are, are like freelancers, but they're full time essentially. Uh, and so this agency was your first business, right? It was. Yep. What did you do before that? 
I was actually a supervisor at a uh, trucking company. So I actually ran uh, inbound dock, ironically enough. Um, inbound dock being, you know, we get shipments in and then, you know, I need to get the trailers, make sure my, my, my crew is loading the trailers and getting it out for delivery. So completely irrelevant. Uh, but before, you know, when I was in high school, I actually kind of taught myself Dreamweaver and Photoshop and enjoyed it. You know, I thought it was so cool that I could actually put together something and then it would be on the web and other people could could see it. And I thought that was so amazing. And so I decided I wanted to because I, I was in line to be, you know, getting promotions and everything else. And I just felt like, you know, at some point you're going to be making too much money and it's hard to leave. And I, that's just not a career path I wanted to go down. I'd kind of felt I I reached the end of the line there. And so I was interested in getting my own thing going and I decided it was going to be websites. And so I uh, got a got my first customer for a web build and realized, you know, I don't think I like building websites for other people so much. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in any case, that ultimately quickly led me to switch gears slightly and focus on kind of the SEO side of the business, which had kind of this monthly recurring revenue angle. And that was what excited me most about it. And so really heavily pursued that still offered web development just as part of that uh, solution. But um, but yeah, that's kind of, I guess, how it evolved. So you were too scared to make too much money. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, right. Cause once you're, once you're, once you're working in, you know, I guess corporate America, if you're getting promoted, I mean, if you start making a hundred thousand dollars a year in your job, there's no way you can walk away from that and just go for, you know, go to zero or, you know, uh, switch career paths and do something different. And, you know, go back to 40,000 a year because your, your lifestyles change too much. Right. So just, yeah, I mean, essentially I was, I was afraid of making too much money in an in industry in a career path that I didn't really enjoy. And how long uh, did you work in this industry before you started this agency? Oh, let's see, six years. So out of high school, I just got a data entry job. I was doing billing at the trucking company. Uh, my mom actually worked there and so got a, got, got the job that way. And then, uh, just kind of worked my way up. I mean, I was man, I was a supervisor at, at 21, which actually was a, a great experience for me managing people, you know, three times my age. And I kind of learned pretty early on that I wasn't going to be able to please everyone. And, you know, uh, that's not what I should be focused on. And, um, you know, just had to kind of make my way as, as a leader there and which obviously helped me later on as an entrepreneur. But, uh, so I did that. And then I actually, uh, left that to, uh, play poker professionally for a little while. Uh, mm -hmm. and so that was, that was fun and, and that was good times, but had, uh, you know, mortgage and, and, and a kid and needed to, uh, you know, just have, I, I needed to make about $5,000 a month just to cover my, my monthly expense at that point. And so, you know, that, that was uh, a little tricky, you know, playing poker professionally, um, just because you needed to make that just to get by, not even, you know, uh, to, to kind of move up levels, if you will, in, in poker, if you're familiar with that. But, uh, any case, uh, that wor worked out for, you know, about, I don't know, a year, year, year and a half. And then, uh, went back into chucking again. And, um, because that was obviously where my experience was and I didn't necessarily know the, the path I was going to go on yet. And, uh, you know, during that time I was kind of switching, Majors. I never. I actually ended up dropping out uh, of school because I couldn't settle on on whatever I wanted to do. I uh, didn't didn't have a, a clue there yet, 
and just felt like I was wasting my time. And so I uh, got back into, got back into trucking and then kind of went cold Turkey into my agency when I, when I decided to, uh, hang up my cleats, so to speak. Cold Turkey is a great uh, expression for that. Uh, what kind of ex expenses are we talking about for, for a professional poker player? So for me, you know, I, I mean, a lot of times you see younger kids, you know, 19, 20, 21, they don't have a wife, they don't have a baby, they don't have a mortgage, you know, so their, their commitments are minimal. Um, and it's so much easier to, you know, make your way when you don't have, you know, outside expenses to worry about. And so, um, you know, I was not in that position, you know, um, had, you know, wife had a baby had house. So needed to, uh, I guess, you know, just be able to afford those things, you know, cars. I mean, a lot of, a lot of professional poker players, like I said, they're 20, 21 and they're, they're living in Vegas out of a hotel, don't need a car, you know, so they, their, their, their expenses are just, you know, super low in that, I guess in that situation. But, um, you know, and when you're, when you're doing that, all you need to worry about is just making money, you know, at, at poker, and, you know, making sure you got a place to stay and, and have some food and, uh, you know, you can work your way up, uh, you know, blind levels, um, you know, pretty, pretty easily. So, um, yeah, just a different, different situation though. A little secret for my, uh, for the listeners out there. I'm quite f familiar with poker. I mean, but like more online poker than actual poker. I don't think I ever played in a tournament or anything in poker. But I lost a lot of money in online poker when I was a student. And at the time, actually, I was, I was a student in the US. I spent nine months in Kansas and I played online poker for like months and months and I lost a lot of money. I mean, a lot for me as a student, uh, money that my parents were giving me to feed myself and yeah. So I am familiar was, with this, the poker yeah, side of things. When I was, when I was doing it, I guess professionally, I, I was going online and in person and online. I mean, I was at, uh, I was playing, uh, 100, 200 and I was playing shorthanded and, you know, three, four, four players. And yeah, it, it was wild. I mean, one, literally one day I won 25,000 and I bought myself a Rolex and the next day I lost 24,000. And so the, the swings were pretty wild, but I realized at that point that, you know, I, I wasn't bothered by it like most people would be. And so I felt like I had just a, you know, a, a, a slightly different mentality than most. And obviously that's, that's certainly served me well in, in the, you know, business landscape. Uh, to come back to the to the agency you created, um, because you're a first time entrepreneur by then. So, did you have any money set aside when you started? No money. Yeah, it was you know just I mean maybe a month's worth of of expenses uh, covered. So it was it was a dramatic change. Uh, I was ready for it, but I think there's, you know, I, and honestly, I would not recommend that for anyone. It was a highly, highly stressful. Um, it was definitely some tough times in, in the very early going, but at the same time, I think it's pretty amazing what people, uh, people are, are capable of when their back is to the wall. And my back was certainly to the wall and I needed to figure out some way somehow to make it work. And, you know, uh, you know, you start just, just diving in and just figuring it out. And so, you know, for me, I was, and, and really this even led to ultimately w what I would be working on now, which is, which is LeapFuse, which is the software 
business I was telling you about at the top of the show. But um, because through that, what I realized is I needed to figure out a way to grow the agency and I needed to, to do it fast. And so what I was realizing is early on, people were posting jobs. SEO was becoming more and more important at the time. This is in 2008, still relatively an unknown channel, uh, marketing channel for most small businesses at the time, but it was starting to become a little more popular and people were actually posting jobs for those roles. And so I would actually go to Craigslist and I would open up every single city and open up both the jobs board and the gigs board and I would manually go through every single day looking for any job postings in all of the cities that referenced SEO in the title or digital marketing or internet marketing or online marketing, you know, all these different variations. And I would submit, you know, just an email through the system saying, you know, don't hire someone, use me instead at a fraction of the cost and get the same result and yada, yada. And I was spending literally six hours a day doing this. And this happened for about three weeks and I realized, uh, I was going to need to spend my time doing other things too. I mean, heaven forbid I actually get a client on this and, and I need to, you know, provide some service. Right. So luckily that ended up happening. I uh, got my first client at, and they were, you know, paying me like 1750 a month. And you know, that was a, that was a strategy that worked, you know? Um, but I ended up kind of from there building some, some software that would automate some of that, um, which, which certainly helped. I was now just needing to look at a list and I didn't have to, you know, go one by one through all these cities anymore. So that was kind of one way I, I was able to, you know, automate some of the, the lead generation aspects of, of, you know, the agency early on, but I, I can share more too, if you'd like, or if you want me to go down a different path, that's fine too. Sure. I mean, we can, we will talk about more tactical things in the second part of the podcast around marketing. I'm interested about like how do you know roughly, do you remember how roughly how many emails did you send to land this first customer? Oh boy, this is, man, this is about eight years ago. I, I don't know the number offhand, but let me think here. If I were, you know, I was going through every city, not, you know, obviously not every city at the time had job postings for, for that. Uh, you, and some of them, I mean, it might be once every two weeks you see something, but you know, I, I was probably sending, I don't know, 30 or so a day at the end of it. You know, some of them that just weren't really applicable to what I was doing or they were needing, you know, way more than just SEO type work, you know, so you're, you're going through these posts, you're reading them, you know, seeing if it fits, um, maybe even doing, uh, you know, just, just clicking through to their URL if it was in there just to kind of see what kind of business they have. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was probably sending about 25 to 30 a day and I was doing no follow-ups either, you know, um, which is a, a catastrophic mistake. Uh, you should definitely be following up and, and, you know, now there's so many more resources. I mean, LinkedIn was not really a thing then, whereas now, you know, it's like, okay, we'll do some research, see who it is that, you know, could have actually posted this and, or if, you know, if they're a smaller business, go right to the business owner, find them on LinkedIn, you know, all these things weren't really, that wasn't a part of the process back then that you can leverage now. So yeah, a little, little different situation, but yeah, I was, I was sending probably 20, 25 to 30 by the time I got, you know, uh, the, the customer I'd probably sent 300, you know, uh, if not more, uh, by that point. But yeah, uh, does that answer your question? It does. That's not bad. That's not a bad return, especially that the, if I, if I heard you well, you said that the client paid you, was paying you 1750. 
Is that yep. it? That's, yep. quite, that's quite a good amount as a first client. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and what it did is it gave me a lot of confidence, you know, because I realized at that point I could answer questions. I mean, going into that interview, I had no idea, you know, I, I did not have an SEO background. I literally just, uh, you know, absorbed every ebook and book that I could on the topic and, and blogs. And, you know, I just kind of started to play around with it on my own and, you know, felt like I could, you know, hold my own there. But I had really no experience talking to uh, another business about it. So I went into it pretty nervous, not realize, you know, not not knowing what they were going to be asking and if I was going to be able to answer those questions. But, you know, luckily, uh, luckily it worked out, certainly gave me confidence. And, you know, people can smell that confidence in you, right? Like they, they know when and you actually know what you're talking about. And so, you know, um, not having that initially, I think probably hurt in, in some of my conversations, but, you know, gradually over time you, you started to, you know, just learn more about it and, and have that, again, that confidence, you know, that, that other people can, can sniff if you will. Do you have any entrepreneurs in your family? None. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I didn't really have a role model you know, I knew with my management experience that I, that I had the work ethic and the know-how to probably pull it off. But, uh, but yeah, I didn't really have anyone to lean to. I mean, I, I just dove into a lot of books. I mean, if there was something I did not know, I would get a book on it and I would dive into it and figure, figure it out that way. I mean, that was kind of my, my coach, if you will, is just the different books that I would read. Mm -hmm. So I've been reading your blog for quite some time now, your personal blog, and you've been very transparent in your journey. Uh, on it until a certain point and you are sharing a lot of emotions a lot of side projects a lot of mistakes you've made you were sharing your financials and all and you have also a community that will share on the notes on the podcast notes where you are pretty transparent with the entrepreneurs who are part of it uh, and quite vulnerable which is something that i like as well so why are you so transparent with this community yeah, you know, I guess I got, so, so what you're talking about is the zero to scale podcast. And I guess where, uh, I, I got the inspiration from was actually Alex Turnbull from Groove. And I remember coming across his blog and I just thought that it was so amazing to see these insights and I, I wanted more. And he would post, you know, one blog a week on, on a specific topic or issue and I always looked forward to those, but I, I had always kind of wanted to take that concept, but, but even go further and do it in a different format. And so that's how we, you know, ultimately, uh, my, my co-host with that podcast has also got his own business and, and was interested in that kind of a model, uh, where basically we we just share everything we worked on for the week. We share what our revenue is at. And, you know, what our plans are for the upcoming week. And then, you know, if we have any fails from the previous week's planning that we wanted to get done and, you know, it's just, it's real, you know, it's, this is, these are the things that people are doing. So oftentimes when you're reading the blogs, it just seems like, man, everything just came together for these people, you know, and wow, how lucky and, you know, all, all of this, but, you know, you, you don't really see the nuts and bolts that, that really helped construct that process, you know, and, and that success. And so what, what I wanted to do with, you know, just being open like this in that podcast is to be able to provide people 
a glimpse into what it takes, you know, um, how to actually grow from nothing. I mean, we, you know, kind of basically started it at, at no idea if it was going to work or not. I mean, it could have very easily failed. I've had projects before different business ventures that, you know, started off great and ended up, you know, failing because at some point, you know, there was something that didn't get validated along the way, whatever it may be. And so, you know, you're certainly, but at the end of the day, I just felt like there were, there were, there were lessons in that too you know, that were, that would be valuable for, for people. And so, uh, I just felt like, you know, just wanted to share the story, get people to realize it's not all roses and, you know, you're going to lose customers and you're going to have, uh, partnerships that go bad and you're going to, you know, all these things that can happen. And, and we just kind of wanted to, you know, I guess expose that and let people know that, you know, it's not the end of the world when these things happen. Did you lose any customers or did somebody steal one of your idea because you were too transparent? Absolutely. So that is <laughs> the risk that uh, you make when you're open and transparent like this. So had several competitors actually start to pop up at the time, you know, when we first started, we provided a done for you service and that was it. I used some of the software that I had built up at my agency and just kind of wrapped a service around it because I didn't want to spend, you know, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 like I had done before on a, on a SaaS product, um, only to find out that, you know, it wasn't going to, to work. Um, so I wanted to, not only, you know, cut out the development time to actually get it started, but, you know, um, wanted to validate that it would be a viable business before, you know, investing too much into it. And so basically taking some of the software I'd built to like pull in businesses and then find contact information, I would, I would run that software internally myself and then customers would sign up for me to write their email copy. It was a, you know, basically a cold email service, write their email copy and find the leads and, you know, just forward them leads as they were interested essentially. And so I had people, you know, sign up for that, which then allowed me to, to start to self fund the business at the same time. And so, um, you know, and then obviously it, it helped prove that, you know, this was something that people would, would pay for. So, um, you know, that's kind of how it got started, I guess. But, uh, through that, you know, done for you service that, you know, we started to see, you know, uh, one, one person actually just ripped off our entire website. I mean, used the same exact website theme, uh, had the same exact message. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And the crazy part about it was we were, we were talking, I mean, we, we actually knew each other. And so that happened. And then I uh, actually had a, a close friend, uh, who we had done business together, uh, with in, in the past and, you know, worked on different projects together and he ended up starting a competing tool. And so that, you know, was, was definitely, uh, an interesting situation. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, you're, you're, you open yourself up to that when you're just so open and transparent. And if there's, you know, any level of success with that business, people are going to try and, and replicate it. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely happened. It's a good way to select your friends, isn't it? Right. <laughs> but I guess, I guess I'm going to try to challenge you on this in the sense that even if you, you wouldn't have been transparent, right? The website would have still been live, right? And so this first person would have stolen the, the theme regardless, right? No, um, because he listened to the podcast, so he knew what we were doing. It's not like he just, hmm. oh, I like this okay. team. You know, he, he knew what we were doing, was even talking to me. Like we, we 
talked via via uh, Skype. I had even planned actually because he's in San Francisco. I'd actually planned to go out there and, and meet up with him at one point. So um, yeah, it was it was it was pretty wild. It caught me off guard, but you know, obviously have, have since moved on. I mean, they they still provide the service where we don't even provide the service anymore. It's just purely software. So, uh, completely different now. I mean, obviously we don't, we don't talk, but, um, but yeah, you know, that, that transparency is what, what led to that. That's not to say that, you know, if people feel you're, you're, you know, onto something that your idea won't get copied and, and used. But, um, you know, when you provide the vehicle for them and kind of share how to get it going and how to grow it and, you know, here's the revenue. So, you know, it's, it's working, you know, basically just cut out all of the validation step that needed to take place. You know, it's, uh, it's helpful for people to do that, you know, like for, for them to get started competing against you, I guess. So, you know, I can, some of the, so Alex, right with groove, his blog, I mean, he didn't get started with that journey until they were like 32,000 in monthly recurring revenue. So there was no risk of it like being a failure at that point. I mean, obviously, you know, the business is, you know, viable and, and it's a proven concept and all of that. I wanted to get kind of earlier than that. But the problem there is obviously you don't have any market share yet. And so when you're open and transparent like that and people come in and, and kind of take the concept, you know, now you're, you're straight up competing with them regardless of, you know, you started at first, it doesn't really matter. You know, you're still early enough to where, um, you know, it's still, it's still a, an open race at that point. And I guess the transparency, it didn't really have a bad effect on you. I mean, as you said, validation is, is a very important step as an entrepreneur. You, you want to know that your problem is, is worth solving and that the solution is, is, uh, is good enough to solve this problem. But I guess what matters at the end of the day is the execution of it and the passion for, for the actual problem you're solving. And you mentioned, um, which I really like the, the fact is that this person who stole your idea has evolved differently than you. So you moved on to a different business model. And so I guess sometimes the line will, the, you know, the line will cross, but then you'll still move apart. It's not like in five years, you're going to be the same business competing in the exact same space. And that's yeah, at the end of the day, someone that's doing that, right? Someone that's just copying you, they don't have the vision for it. Right. So you're always they're always going to be behind you at the end of the day. Our done for you service was never going to be that was not going to be the business model. It was never intended to be the business model. It was just a way to a get more money up front quicker and at the same time validate that people would buy something like this. And if we had that, we knew, you know, I felt a lot more comfortable building out the software and going through that whole process. And so, you know, our our end game was always to get to this point. Uh, whereas, you know, people that were trying to copy us off, you know, early on, uh, maybe didn't know that or have that same end in mind or, you know, whatever. So yeah, you know, at the end of the day, if, if all someone is doing is copying you they're they won't be able to compete for too long just because, you know, they're, they're not forward thinking enough. Um, and you know, they don't, they don't know what to do next. Right. So obviously you're, you're going to keep evolving. So, so yeah, it's a good point. I think it's uh, Amazon CEO who's saying that uh, if the competitors can just follow them, you know, keep their eyes on Amazon, then Amazon will keep their eyes on the customer and they'll just end up fine. Right. Yep. Right. Moving on to digital marketing in more in particular, is there any best practices or, or conventional wisdom that you can, that you hear quite often uh, around digital marketing that you think are completely wrong? 
Um, I don't know about completely wrong. I think you see a lot of bad recommendations on, you know, you know, some of the, the black hat things out there. I mean, people trying to just game Google, you know, uh, obviously over the years, Google's gotten just smarter and smarter and, and have done everything they can to eliminate those things, um, or at least minimize the impacts. So I, I don't think, you know, I know, you know, when I got started, I mean, in, in 08, like, you know, you're always looking for the, the, the easy way, right? Spinning, spinning content and, and directory submissions for links and, you know, social profiles and all this to, you know, link back to your, your website. And, you know, I mean, these are, these, these, this was a service we offered initially, you know, because these were ways that you could kind of shortcut the system and, and get results. And so what, what's, you know, kind of transpired now over the years is, is you just, you really do have to be legitimate. And, you know, content for me is, is always the number one recommendation. It's what I got started with, with lead views, you know, pumping out content consistently, quality content. You know, there's a difference between just doing content and doing it right. But, you know, literally in the last two months, we've had 1100 inbound signups and it's, it's because of the compounding benefits of, of content, you know, so, uh, takes, takes a while, right. But say, say you get, you know, one post to get you 10 visitors a month. And then the next week or what, you know, whatever your, your, your post cadence is, you know, you publish a new blog and that also gets you 10 visits a month. And now, now you're, now you're at 20, right? The next one gets you 10. Now you're at 30, right? So there's this compounding benefit to content marketing that happens over time. And, um, you know, you're starting to, you know, acquire more and more links and that helps your rankings. And, you know, it's just, unfortunately, there's not just a shortcut, you know, it's just, it, it, takes time and, and takes energy. It takes an effort, you know, to make it happen. So, you know, I, if anything, it was just, it's just to, you know, stop looking for shortcuts and just invest the time and resources into actually, you know, making the content happen. And there is still a lot of shitty content being uh, created yeah. and promoted oh, yeah. every day, right? And more generally, I think there is still a lot of marketing BS out there, especially on internet. What do you think marketers should do to make the internet better? Yeah, I think, you know, I guess being a little more intentional with what they're doing on, on the content side, because there's a lot of just a bad content, B just rehashed content. You know, Brian Dean over at Backlinko has this strategy that he calls a skyscraper strategy where, you know, you, you look up keywords that are relevant for your industry. You're taking what's ranking at the top for those keywords in terms of the content. And then what you're looking to do is just like 10 X that content make it, you know, just make it more amazing, you know, include an infographic in it if you can, or get, get more uh, tips and strategies from other influencers and, you know, just, just go above and beyond at, if it's, if it's a, you know, 25 steps, add 25 more, make it 50, you know, um, do whatever you can to just, just have so much better content than what ranks currently. And if that's your focus, uh, what you'll find is a, you know, that content's going to start ranking at the top of search results for those keywords. But B, you know, you're going to start to set this expectation, and so your your subscribers will start to look forward to the content you're producing. You know, people are going to want to link to it because it's higher quality. So you know, it just has a snowball effect. But you know, that would be, I guess, my my recommendation there. And let's now talk about like, let's say I'm a digital marketer. I, I'm working in an agency, well, like a small to medium sized agency, like from five to 20 in the agency. And my, my goal is to, is to help this agency grow, to get more quality leads, more leads in quantity as well. And 
I'd like to get a little bit actionable in this. You've been already going into a lot of details, which is really interesting. But what, if you were this person, what would you do today or tomorrow to, to get more leads? So is this digital marketer, is it working with the clients of the agency or this is kind of a digital marketing person repping the actual agency to grow the agency? Let, let's just simplify it to say to grow the agency. Okay. So his, his job is to grow the agency. You know, again, I keep, keep, you know, harping on this, but to me, it's, it's focusing on content, but not just, you know, so, so the, the skyscraper technique is, is one way of, of coming up with content ideas. You know, another thing that you can do, obviously you should have analytics installed and so, and your, your webmaster tools installed. And so making sure those are installed first and foremost, but once that happens, you know, going and looking at what, what exists already. So if you're five to 20 employees, obviously you, you've been around, you've, you've had some success. And so one of the things you'd want to do is go into your analytics to, I'm sorry, into webmaster tools and then go into search analytics and you can filter by like impressions and clicks and click through rate and all that. And so what you want to do is go ahead and, and select all of the filters. The other one being position, there's like four filters you know, take the, the result and export it into a CSV. And then what I do is I'll actually sort by the impressions column and I'll, I'll put the highest, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, position column. So that's your average position that your website ranked for, for those keywords. And then, uh, so I start, you know, it's, it's 99 at the top and work my way down. And what I'm looking for as I scroll down is impressions. So if my average position is 99th, and there's, you know, 20 impressions for that keyword, that's, that's probably a pretty popular keyword. And so I know if I ranked, you know, 89, even, you know, page nine, you know, let alone page one, you know, those, those impressions are going to go up. And so you can kind of filter, you know, you can get some ideas there as far as like what type of either a content to produce or B, uh, look at those pages that are already ranking and figure out, you know, how you can make those pages better and, and, um, you know, more targeted for those keywords. And so, you know, the S- SEO is, it's, it's still a thing, you know, uh, I use SEM rush and, uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting to go into that and see kind of, you know, a, just the total volume of keywords that you're ranking for. I mean, for us, you know, uh, like subject line related content has been just driving a ton of, of, traffic to us. Uh, almost a quarter of the traffic to our blog is related to, you know, just subject line research. And so, um, you know, it's been a big driver for us. And honestly, we would not have known that had I not seen an SEM rush that, you know, we're ranking for this keyword and it's driving a lot of traffic. And so it's like, okay, well, let's, let's revisit a couple of these posts that we wrote about, you know, subject lines and let's, let's really dive into this and make it amazing. And since we've done that, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, just page one rankings for so many different keywords. And, you know, uh, the other thing to think about too, is like latent semantic indexing, meaning, you know, alternative versions of that. So, you know, if you say digital marketing and internet marketing, Google knows those two are interchangeable, right? So you can use other words that are similar to, you know, the keyword you might be targeting as well, just to pick up additional keyword rankings. So, um, you know, I, I don't ignore SEO, I, I guess is my point, because it, it's definitely something that's, that's impactful. I mean, it's made a huge difference for us and, you know, just continues to make a difference for us as, you know, uh, basically every, every month that goes by, you know, it's just that it's, it's 
stairs, you know, stair stepping, uh, graph, if you will, just keeps going up. So, um, you know, don't, don't ignore SEO. All right. So to summarize, those are really, really good tips. I love them. So the first one is a skyscraper technique, which is you find popular content for specific keywords and, and you just make it 10x better. Second one is using Google Search Console where you identify the biggest search queries where your website appear and you rank them by impression and try to find ideas to, to create better pages for those key terms. And the third one is, is trying to find I think you said it better, but I'm going to try to explain it in my own words is to find synonyms or other way to say certain things, uh, to also rank for those keywords, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, when you're producing that content too, it, like for us, you know, we have multiple posts on, on subject lines and research and data. You want to actually link to those other posts within your content, right? Because that helps also just, it's called interlinking, but you know, that, that helps you, you rank more too. So you, your, your marketer for your blog, you know, for your company should have a really good beat on all of the content that's been produced, the keywords that that content is trying to target. And so this way, when they're coming up with new content, they can look at this, you know, Excel document or Google, Google spreadsheet or whatever, and say, okay, this is for this category. What other, what other content do we have that's targeting some of our keywords or within this category? that, you know, we can, we can link to within this post. Uh, I know for us, you know, part of our content guideline is finding, you know, three pages, uh, inner pages that we can link to. Uh, in addition, we also link out to other resources. So, you know, linking out is actually a helpful technique to, to rank better as well. In particular to, you know, third party, you know, well-respected sites. Um, and, and it lends more credibility to your post too, uh, when you're linking to, you know, research and statistics and whatnot. So, um, you know, we also want to try and link out on all of our content. Uh, I'm really interested about what you mentioned about subject lines. So what are the key tips or actionable stuff that digital marketers could use to be better at their job regarding subject lines? Yeah, you know, it's interesting uh, because there's, you know, obviously there's cold email subject lines, but then there's there's subject lines on your emails, newsletters to your current customers. And those are going to be completely different, you know, and, and really all of this needs to be tested. You know, there's there's what I say now for some of these tips might not be applicable or might not work in your case, you know. So like, for example, uh, you know, four to seven words in your in your subject line is is you know, best. I mean, you don't want to really, you know, go, go beyond that. Uh, three words is, is actually best. So, you know, four to seven is kind of where that sweet spot is, but you know, too short might not work too long might not work. And then in some cases it may, right. So at the end of the day, you're, you're just going to have to test these things, but, uh, there's a lot of research that, you know, that shows that uh, another thing is, you know, having some key trigger words. So free works pretty well. Uh, urgent works really well, you know, when there's that sense of urgency that you're building in. But if it's a cold email, it might not work as well, you know, so you kind of have to, you know, take it in context too with, with some of these, you know, cold email tips. But yeah, I mean, there's, like I said, there's, there's just, there's so much data out there and what starts working, you know, for, for some people as it gets used more and more and more will become less and less effective. And that's really with, with any sort of marketing effort, not just your subject line, but you know, any, any marketing channel really at some point there's a saturation level. And so, you know, by the time a lot of this research comes out, it's already starting to be saturated, you know? So you got to be careful when you're actually doing some of this research to try and implement some of these strategies that you're not, you know, too late to the party. Uh, you know, you look back on like 
uh, Aaron Ross, you know, he wrote uh, predictable revenue. He was the person at, at Salesforce that grew that that whole sales team and uh, used cold email. And the approach he used was, you know, trying to get introduced to the person that would handle whatever responsibility, you know, in his case, their sales responsibility. And so he would go to the person above his target level and try to get introduced to whoever, you know, was handling that responsibility. And so, you know, the theory there being if it comes from the CEO to the head of sales, you know, it's going to be much more likely that that head of sales actually looks at this email and acts on it because it came from the CEO. That, that's, that's the theory. It worked amazingly well. But, you know, he, he wrote the book six years ago about something they were doing 10 years before that. Right. So it's like it's so outdated now that that strategy doesn't work yet. People are just now coming across the book, Predictable Revenue and thinking, oh, well, this is what I have to do. You know, so you just you have to be careful about, you know, how long this research has been out there, how long, you know, it, it just, just be ready to test, I guess, is the most important takeaway here. It's really good tip. Really good. I think it's uh, Gary Vaynerchuk who's, uh, who's saying that marketers take every new channel out there and just turn it into shit. Uh, oh, yeah. Like he's mentioning Snapchat. He's saying that Snapchat is already gone. Like there's so many marketers going on it and just turning it into a shit show. I think he's, he's also saying I've actually listened to a video of him today at Inbound and he's, he was saying that the cost of Facebook ads, it's going to go through the roof in the next mm -hmm. three years. And that's because exactly what you said, I guess, once, once it gets trendy and once it gets popular, it gets expensive, it gets crazy. People use it and it, people get desensitized or whatever uh, to, yeah. to it, you know, right. I mean, the same, I mean, any, any paid channel like that, yeah, you can bank on it. Every, every one of them is going to go up through the roof, right? AdWords is, you know, so costly for most businesses that, you know, it just doesn't even make sense anymore. You know, I mean, in 2008, I mean, you, you could get clicks for, you know, $3 that are now $13, $15. You know, it's a huge, huge difference. Um, so yeah, you know, in three years, absolutely. Facebook's costs are going to go through the roof. Uh, you know, any, any paid channel like that will, you know, gradually go that direction as more and more people get into it. So, you know, it's unfortunate, but you know, that marketers wouldn't be doing their jobs if that wasn't the case, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what their job is, is test new channels, find channels that are working. And when it's working, double down and, you know, go all in with it. Uh, and then, you know, other marketers start to learn about the success people are having and then they start to do it. And so, uh, you know, it's just gradually that's what happens to, to every marketing channel. I mean, there's a, there's a brief window where you might be the only one on the playground, but at some point, you know, if it's working, you, you can, you can expect it's going to get more costly and, and more competition is going to be, you know, in, in the fold at that point. I, I want to come back a little bit to the cold emails because if there is something that I, I don't know if I'm good at detecting them or they're just people sending them or just too, too bad. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I don't receive as many as you do, uh, but I do receive a few, you know, per day that don't get detected by Google and the little things I can notice even then they try to be smart about it and try to say, you know, hi, Louis, I, I know you're busy with slices consulting. So, you know, I can see that the placeholders are there. Even then there's like little mistakes, like, you know, formatting is different. You know, the, the hi, Louis, is, the formatting is different slightly than the body of the email. There is even sometimes a unsubscribe link at the bottom. Like if you're sending it only to me, then don't, you know, you don't need to put any unsubscribe. Yeah. Um, so any, 
anything that in cold email particularly uh, that that people shouldn't do that should be very careful of oh yeah <laughs> so this yeah uh, you, you you touched on one thing right there at the end is is the unsubscribe link i mean that is a, just a dead giveaway that this is a, a blast email right it might try to come off personalized but at the end of the day you know that's obvious and so what people think our, our can spam laws here in the US, it, it, you have to provide a way for people to opt out. And so what people tend to confuse is they, they think, well, if I need to provide a way for an opt out, that means I need to provide an unsubscribe link, which is not the case. So for me, I never use an unsubscribe link. And what I do instead is, is reference in like the PS, you know, if, if uh, you know, they're not the right person, let me know. Um, if they'd like for me to not follow up with them, just go ahead and reply to this email. Let me know that too. And what that does is a, it, you know, you're, you're offering the opt out that way. Uh, but B, if they reply, what that does is actually helps your engagement rates, right? So it keeps your future email deliverability higher because, you know, your, your email sender can see that there's incoming, you know, email coming back to you. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's a workaround to, you know, requiring or, or having uh, an unsubscribe link. I mean, that's, that's an alternative. Um, so, you know, there, there's so many, I mean, I, I can go through, you know, a handful, um, of, of, I guess, best practices for, with cold email. Sure. Is that kind of what you want me to go through? Yeah, one or two more if you want. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. So another thing that I see oftentimes is people will send a cold email and they'll start off by introducing themselves. And I know that sounds like that's what you should do, but really, I mean, you're immediately telling this person, you have no idea who I am. So now I have to, you know, introduce myself. And unfortunately that comes up as, you know, in the email client, like in the preview, right? Like in your, in your inbox, on your phone, where a lot of people are reading their emails. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, half, pe half the people see an email first on their phone now. And so, uh, when it says, hi, I'm so-and-so with XYZ company, and that's all they see. I mean, immediately they know they don't know you. So this shouldn't be too important. And it's a cold email and, you know, on to the next. So what I recommend is just going straight in. So I kind of have this, this formula uh, that, I've, that I've called QVC, similar to the, the shopping channel. But basically what it, what it stands for is question, value prop, close. And so I, I'll usually lead in with some sort of a question or I recommend leading in with some sort of a question that pertains to what your value prop offers. So, you know, I, I was curious, are you doing, are you, you know, maybe for us, it might be like, are you, um, are, are you and your, your sales team utilizing cold email as a legion strategy? And I mean, that's just off the top of my head. I, that's not actually something I would send, but that gives you an idea. Right. And then, you know, my value prop, I, I spend, you know, one, maybe two sentences, uh, you know, talking about the, the benefits. So not the features, right. It's important to use you every just rule of thumb. Anytime you're using I and we, you need to, you need to change that to you and not just, just literally the word, but obviously when you, when you use the word you, it changes you, your, your message to focus on the, the benefit to them and not the feature of your product, right? So I always recommend trying to eliminate any I's and we's. And so just focusing on, on the benefits to, you know, it, whether it's saving time, it's making more money, it's, it's, you know, bigger, more exposure, higher ranking, whatever it is, um, that, you know, you want to highlight. And then, uh, your close should just be, uh, I like to use a, another question. So in my case, uh, you know, one of the questions we would use are, 
you know, are, are there any types of businesses that make good customers for you? And that's it. Oftentimes I see people trying to, you know, do you have a time, you know, tomorrow or in the next few days on your calendar to, you know, talk about how we can benefit you or, you know, something like that. You're, you're asking way too much. You have not brought any value to the table. You know, you're, you're asking them to somebody that they don't even know to go and book a, you know, a 15 minute, 30 minute time slot with you to be sold something. I mean, you know, people just aren't going to do that. Now in your follow-ups, you can certainly, you know, alternate the the approach a little bit. And so by email three or four, if you haven't gotten a response, then go ahead and go for it, right? You've tried other channels. So, you know, typically my my next email uh, is, you know, another question and that's it. Literally like a one-line email, just simply a question. My goal is to get a response. It could be a bad response, but that's okay because it's still a response. It shows engagement. You know, it could potentially start the conversation, right? There's, there's a lot of benefits to just getting a response. So my, my focus is just simply to, to start a conversation, get a response. I'm not trying to sell them. I'm not trying to get them signed up and closed on, you know, over my first cold email, you know, just, just simply ask a question, you know, but that's kind of, you know, some more, I mean, I've, I've got a lot more I can go into, but I don't know how much time you want to dedicate to that necessarily. Well, like those are absolutely awesome. To be honest, I, there's quite a few that I've never heard before. The reply, like the fact that, you know, even if somebody replies and, and, and it's a no or it's a fuck off, uh, it's still good. Uh, yeah. cause you can, I guess, I guess you can build on that. And if you're good at writing, then you can really get them to say why they tell you no and, and start a conversation, I suppose. I think moving on to the future of marketing, I like to know. Obviously, our field is changing very rapidly, like any other fields. Uh, we need to adapt. We need to, to adapt or, or else we die. But in terms of skills that any digital marketers should have in the next, let's say, five years, what are the ones, what are the most important ones, do you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly writing, you know, that's the one of the top traits that we're looking for in everyone that we hire, not even marketers. But I mean, we like our content process, you know, we'll, we'll be including everyone in the organization. So our salespeople will be writing our, our customer success person, you know, everyone's going to be contributing. But, you know, outside of that, I think just in general to have this a thirst for knowledge, you know, so I use Feedly. I'm subscribed to a lot of blogs, uh, both in my industry with with sales, but also certainly uh, with digital marketing. And, you know, oftentimes, uh, literally every single day I go through it. I mean, I'm subscribed to probably 120 or 130 different blogs. And every day I'll go through it. And if there's articles that, you know, I really find valuable or want to kind of go back to and look at again in the future, I'll save that. Uh, it's like in Feedly, you can save for later. There's other tools like Pocket that you can save it to. But in any case, I like it in one spot. And so, you know, I, like, for example, I just finished putting together kind of our content strategy for 2017. And over the past eight months, I knew I was going to be around this time diving into content and putting together a plan. And so over the last eight months, I've saved a lot of different articles on in particular content promotion and different strategies that people are using and reading case studies and all of that. And, 
from that, you know, when, when it came time for me to sit down and start put it, putting our plan together for 2017, you know, I went back through all of these articles I had saved and got ideas. You know, a lot of them were all the same, but, you know, every every so often you're, you're going to find new little nuggets that you can use and incorporate. And so, you know, basically was able to put together a, a promotion playbook just from, you know, kind of all of that research, right? And that research happens because this is what I'm interested in and I like the, the idea of growing. I mean, our, our business the last two months has had, you know, again, 1,100 inbound trials for, for our software from our, our content efforts. So, you know, it, so what do I need to do to make that 2,000 now, right? And that part excites me and so there's this natural kind of uh, thirst there, I guess. But, you know, I think just just being being... I guess curious is, is probably the number one trait I look for when I hire somebody is, are they curious? You know, are they going to go out and do this level of research? Are they going to stay on top of things and just keep their, their blade sharp, if you will? Are they going to, you know, try and find the answer themselves or are they going to come to me all the time? You know, so curiosity is probably, like I said, it, it's the number one trait that I'm looking for in someone, uh, which you don't, you don't hear about too often, but for me, it's a big deal. Uh, so, you know, I think just staying on top of things in, in, in your industry and, and strategies that you can apply not only to yourself, but if you're obviously in a marketing agency, you can do that for your clients as well. But, you know, that, I guess that would be my, my recommendation. You mentioned that you're reading a lot of blog posts and a lot of blogs. Uh, what would be the top three blogs that every digital marketer should read? So Moz, you know, HubSpot does a phenomenal job. And, you know, Kissmetrics content is, is really good as well. They usually have, you know, an in-depth how-to on something specific. And then outside of that, you know, like Matthew Barbie, you know, he's got a really good blog. Let's see, Brian Dean, I, I brought up Backlinko. You know, that one's a really good one. So, you know, those are, those are some of the ones off the top of my head that I, I would recommend. Excellent. I have actually, I think I talked with, with Matthew Barbie at a conference in Dublin a few months ago. Nice. Uh, he's a great guy. He's, uh, he's in HubSpot now, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. Very cool, man. Yeah, no, he's, he's really good. I like his content. You know, Quick Sprout would be the other. You know, Neil Patel obviously does a phenomenal job with his content. So, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, those are some of the top ones that I recommend. Uh, you've been really, really helpful with all those actionable stuff. I think, I think the listeners will, will, can take away a lot from what you said. So thank you for that. Where can listeners connect with you, uh, follow you? You bet. So I'm on Twitter, JUS10 McGill, M C G I L L. So Justin McGill. Uh, feel free to hit me up on email, Justin at leadfuse.com. I, I, you know, I have kind of this inbox zero approach to my, uh, to my email. So I always try to get through all my emails every day. So um, feel free to reach out via email too. And tell me more about your podcast and uh, the community you have behind it. Yeah. Zero to scale. Thank you. Yeah. Zero to scale is the podcast and myself and Greg Hickman is my co-host and he has his own business. I have mine. We just go, you know, in depth on a weekly basis about what we're doing for, for our businesses to try and grow them. And, uh, you know, hopefully if you're, you know, trying to, trying to get a business going, uh, you know, you'll, you'll learn some things along the way. Justin, thank you so much once again for your time. You bet. Cheers. The listeners will, uh, you can get access to the, to the notes, uh, on the blog. Um, you'll get access to all the resources that Justin shared, all the blogs, everything that he mentioned. And until next time, take care. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, 
I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and um, personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always unsubscribe for sure, if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet, and we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people would be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.